By the way, God does those things to humble you to, you know, just no <laughs> reputation. I do feel very privileged this morning to be here uh, and to share God's word. I don't take lightly this opportunity. Um, I want to be the kind of man who stands on the shoulders of other men. I don't know if you know what that means. That there are people who've gone before us who've pioneered a way. And they've, they've opened the door and they've, they've charted a path. And, and I see coming here as, as an opportunity to stand on a man's shoulders. And it means a lot to me. And I'm also privileged today to have a couple in here. If I can say it's about crime. For, for you, if you're a parent in here, I want to encourage you. I'm going to take a plug for our children's ministry right now. Put your children in our children's ministry on Sunday mornings, on Wednesdays afternoons. Because I am honored today that a buckaroo commander and his wife would come hear me preach this morning. <laughs> because I was in their class. <laughs> and they survived it somehow. I, I don't know. Because <laughs> I knew me. And I am honored uh, Warner and Dorothy Goodwin are here. And if you would stand up, I, I, you guys deserve way more honor than this group could give us or that I could give you. But would you stand up and let this crowd know how, how awesome you are in my life? <laughs> there are a few people in my life that I will look back and go, I'm here because someone made an investment in me. And that couple right there is, is one of those that I will look back and say that. I also had a youth pastor who, through some foresight of God, chased me. <laughs> if you have teenagers, I, I, I want you, I encourage you, I implore you, let them be here on Wednesday nights because we have a youth pastor who will chase after them. Please, God's burdened in his heart, let him. <laughs> it will help you, I promise. <laughs> if you're a parent of a teenager, you need it. Amen? Yes. All right, so this morning I want to talk about worship. Yeah, you knew that, right? <laughs> I want us to look in the, in, the cha- in the book of John, chapter 4. And in this, Jesus gives us a, a, a very sure statement in, in verse 23. Now, we're going to read through 1 through 26. If you have there, you can turn to uh, chapter 4, verse 1. But in, in 23, he says this, but, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, that's a rather bold statement for Jesus to make because it's a very imperative statement. Now, he says, now, the hour is coming and the hour is now. Now, we know in the book of John when he uses this phrase, the hour is coming, he's specifically speaking to the hour of his his crucifixion. Because there's something at that point in time in which everything changes. There's something at that point in time when all the old things are made new. When the wrath of God is completely satisfied and justified. There's something that happens at that moment that breaks away the shackles of sin And it fulfills the promise that he made in the garden that one day will come and I will end evil forever. And that's what John signifies when he says, but the hour is coming. And so this morning, as we jump into the book of John, I just want us to start in prayer because I want you to pray for me. And I want to pray because I want God's anointing over this. I don't want to just give words. I don't want to just make tones. But that God would open our eyes and our ears this morning so that we may know what, not just what worship is, but how to be true worshipers following after him. Amen? Amen. So dear Heavenly Father, I just come and God, I just ask you again, you would wash us. God, your word says that your word would wash us clean. God, I'm reminded when you bowed before your disciples to wash their feet. Such a humbling exercise. 
And I hear Peter say, oh, no, not me. I'm not worthy that you would wash my feet. And you responded back to him and said, unless I do, you have no part with me. So this morning, Jesus, I ask that you would wash us, that we may have a part with you. God, that your word would be life in us, that it would be freeing in us, that it would be elevating in us, that it would be encouraging us, that it would go and do that which you've called it to do, that it would fulfill its purposes, that it would not return void, but it would complete the work in us that you began. So this morning, I just offer myself as a humble vessel that you would speak through me, that you would encourage this house with your word. And I ask this in the precious name of Jesus, amen. You see, growing up during my teenage years, I had kind of adopted this, developed this idea that the Christian life should be epic. Now, despite some of the best encouragement other people may have given me, I don't know where it really came from. I had just developed this idea that the things of God would be epic and they would be great and that church should be explosive. And I think it was partly attached to some experiences I had and uh, some of the things I'd seen. But I always kind of felt this idea that there should be these big displays of God. Like when we went to church, that it should be these big moments, that everything should be grand, that the altar call should always end up in people in tears or laying on the ground or just these crazy moments. And somehow that got in my mind that that was normal. And we would go to these youth events, I remember, and there would be like these huge You know, it was like old people couldn't come because the speakers were so loud they would change your heart rhythm, right? Ever been there? Like these are the youth events. And you'd go there and you'd feel your heart rhythm change. And I think the gospel should change our hearts, not necessarily the kick drum, right, Pastor John? (laughs) But there was like these big displays. Like they, they was like they had to make this big show. And I remember like even the altar calls were dramatic. They, they, they would sometimes last for forever and everybody would be like, oh, I just want to go home right now. But no, it was like, one more time, one more time. I remember we had this worship leader who would just go, whoa, whoa, like we were just winding us up or something. And it just left in me this, this note that everything should be big, epic, and grand. But the reality is I never found my life matching that. Anybody here witness that? Like sometimes my life is just not grand. Sometimes it's utterly boring and dull. Sometimes I look in the mirror and I'm like, <laughs> no, just me? Okay. And, and I remember I was at, at one of these events and there was this verse that the speaker built his whole sermon on. It was Daniel eleven thirty two, And it said, the people who know their God will be strong and do great exploits. And unfortunately, I received a misinterpretation of what that meant. And so I'm thinking, yeah, we're going to go. It's going to be great. Epic, yeah. And so I had this like dream and this vision that I would just step out and like, you know, like the mountains would just crumble and waves apart and I'd walk into a crowd and people would just, right? Nobody else ever had that. Okay, just me. All right, I'll just confess this morning. But you see, history tells us there's a different interpretation of that. You know, because I I don't have to just lean on what the interpretation, like this really happened. This was a prophetic word over a group of people and then it unfolded in time and the ESV kind of puts it to this, that they'll be strong, that they'll just remain. Like the ESV kind of changes, they'll just remain. And so what happened was, is these people, God's idea of great exploits and our idea of great exploits are two different things, I believe. At least mine was. Because for the people that Daniel was prophesying about, what it meant for them to do great exploits was that they would not drink the blood offered to uh, idols and that they would be martyred for their steadfast trust in the Lord. Now, that's a lot different idea than what I had. <laughs> you know, I'm not thinking, oh, yeah, I'll just go and be persecuted and die for the gospel and that'll be epic. Like, no, I, I had this different idea in my head. But yet that's God's meaning here. When he says that the people of God will go forth and do great exploits, what it means is they will stay steadfast in him. 
And no matter what life throws at them, no matter whatever anybody else brings at them, no matter what anybody throws in their way, no matter what circumstance or what principality or what evil brings before them, they will stand strong in the Lord. And if it costs them their life, they'll give it. Now, that was not my interpretation. So here I am, a young man, misguidedly believing that if I was a true Christian, that I would go out and epic things would just happen. So here I am, a freshman in high school. And I just got back from one of these epic events, and I just was going to take my high school for the Lord. And I remember going, and I was just, I'm just going to walk around my high school and pray and fast for seven days. Now, seven high school days, not seven literal days. So... I start on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday. And I remember on Tuesday, I was like, oh, that's going to be the day. You know, I'm like, got a pep in my step. I'm happy. I'm excited. I'm praying. I'm walking. I'm shouting as I walk. I mean, everybody's like, where's Wade again? <laughs> Whew, what's wrong with him? And I remember I get there and, I, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing this and I'm there. And guess what happened? Nothing. I was like, okay, now what? (laughs) Now what? Nothing. You see, you and I live in this culture where we're constantly overwhelmed, we're overstimulated by this fast-paced entertainment, and we've come to become energized and manipulated and have the strings of our emotions turned. We've developed an idealized, vicarious source of living without the pain of actually living. Some people would call this an arena culture. Rome probably called it the Colosseum. And if you turn on your TV, you see this over and over and over and over again. That one show's got to outdo the other show. I mean, Marvel's an epitome of this, and I know some of you fans are, some of you are probably fans of sci-fi and action heroes. I mean, I turn it on, it's just one blow-up scene after the next. I'm like, where's the storyline? <laughs> Why are they blowing things up? I don't get it. Where did this guy come from? Who is he? I'm lost. And everything has to be epic and big, and you turn on the, uh, I don't know, I probably shouldn't say this about The Bachelor, because probably half of you guys in here watch it, but... It's just one cry after the next, right? I'm like, can anybody really cry that much? Like, I don't get it. So much drama. Ah. I'm looking at my little girl and I'm going, less drama, less drama, less drama, not more. And we live in this arena culture where we're being inundated and inundated and we're constantly having our emotions turned and twisted and manipulated to try to get us to do something. We want to sit on our couches and get a picture of living without the real pain of life. Because when you open your door and you have a couple sitting at your table whose marriage has fallen apart and you have to weep and hurt with them, it hurts. It hurts when they actually get through divorce. It hurts when you love someone and you see them walk away from the Lord. Because real life hurts. You see, many churches no longer care about discipleship. They've abandoned true discipleship. This living together for the good. This sharing life one-on-one with opening your table, opening your doors of your house, with exposing your marriage to a younger couple who's just getting married. With pouring out your life week after week after week into a little boy who doesn't get it, who's crazy, who runs and bounces off the walls. Not knowing that one day God has purposed his life. Because those moments are hard. See, many churches have traded that for a show. For an experience. Many Christians don't want to be shaped by the word of God. They just want to have a good time. Now, it sounds like I'm kind of riding this a little hard, and maybe I'll back off a little bit. 
So I'm going to share with you the words of Paul. Now, you know, Paul wrote two books of the Bible that dealt with false teachings in the church, right? These false ideas that people grab. But he's writing to a younger counterpart of his in 2 Timothy. And he says, a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears that will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I'm going to step out a little bit here and hopefully not on any toes because this group of people, you guys exercise discernment, I'm sure, but I'm talking about the Big C Church in large. And this is for you when you talk to your friends who, who don't walk in discernment. But everything that comes on the Christian radio isn't Christian. Everything for sale in the Christian bookstore is not Christian. And we have to be people who exercise discernment in these things. If you're listening to a song and it says there's a void in heaven that only you feel, uh -uh. wrong, wrong answer. There's a void in me that only heaven could fill, but there is no void in heaven, I promise you. Heaven is not lacking anything. And I think that this arena culture has started to whittle its way into our churches and distract our people and steal from their hearts because it's come about stirring emotions rather than standing on the word of God, being steadfast and true no matter what. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to stand on the gospel. We're going to sing the gospel. We're going to declare Jesus. We're going to praise his name. We're going to declare the glory of the Lord. Amen? And I think we have to decide as a people and as a church, is that who we're going to be? Because a good show will turn out a lot of people. But you know the problem with a good show? <laughs> you got to keep it going. You know, Paul also tells Timothy that the time will come when there will be people who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. Guys, I want to tell you the power is in Jesus. The power isn't an experience that we have in the altar calls. The power isn't in a song. The power isn't in how good the singing was or if we liked it or not. The power is in the resurrected Christ. And the power is in this word. When we dig into this word and we read it and we let it wash over us and we let it come in our ears and when we listen... That's where the power is. See, the church today has become a beacon for feel-good, self-improvement pep talks. We've become a culture that wants to be entertained spectators rather than equipped participators. We shop for churches based on what they make us feel like, not whether the gospel's preached. Whether we like the worship or not, well, to steal a quote, it was not about you. Worship isn't about you. And if you go into a church, well, I don't know, did I like it or not? I think you're asking the wrong question. The question should be asked, is God in the house? Is God in the house? You see, because the gospel demands a response. And that's where it rubs us. Because when the gospel comes forth, it pricks our hearts. It causes us to die. It causes us to lay down. It causes us to be reshaped. It causes us to, to hurt, to feel, to feel pain. But it also soothes us, and it also comforts us, and it's also our peace, and it's also our sustaining bread, and it's also our hope, and also our, our lifeblood. I feel like I should tell a joke just to kind of lighten the mood a little bit. Sorry. <laughs> you see, I wanted a big move of God when I was a teenager. But I never stopped to talk to the kids at the end of D Hall who smoked during lunch. I want you to catch me saying. I wanted a move of God, but every day I passed by the same people in the same hallway. Not once did I stop and talk, hear their story. Not once did I 
share the, about Christ. Not once did I care about anything other than myself. You know, I wasn't like another young man in my high school who got up early on Tuesday mornings to have a Bible study. Because I didn't care about discipleship. I just cared about a big show. I cared about feeling good. I cared about being entertained in church, having a good time. You see, I didn't love Christ. I loved what Christ could do for me. It was about me, and that was the day I gave up on church. That was the day I gave up on God. Because what I thought about God wasn't real. It wasn't happening. I had come to believe that there was this formula that if I did it, that God would do. That if I, then God. And I thought that there was a formula to get God to respond the way I wanted it to him. And I thought that there was this formula that if I acted or prayed the right thing, or if I had enough faith, whatever that means, if those things happened, that God would just do it. Yet that wasn't the reality that I was experiencing in my life. You see, in Psalms 50 is a similar story. God looks at the people of Israel and he says, do you really think if I was hungry that I would ask you? He said, I own all the cattle. I'll just take one. He said, do you really think that I'd drink the blood of goats? I mean, that's there, Psalms 50, go read it. I encourage you. He says, no, you've, you've got this formula and you think this formula gets, to, gets you to me. It, the formula never gets us to God. See, throughout the Bible, there's this overarching narrative that we get it wrong. I mean, that's the reality. The overarching narrative of the gospel, of the Bible, is that we get it wrong. I mean, Adam and Eve first started off, they got it wrong. Abraham got it wrong. I mean, the father of our faith. Here's Noah. God's going to start over with creation. And here's Noah. And first thing he does when he gets off the boat is get it wrong. Here's David, a man after God's own heart. Well, he gets it wrong. And time after time after time after time, they get it wrong. And a pattern begins to develop for a reason, I believe, because then a man shows up on the scene and he gets it right. Because our faith, our faith isn't supposed to be in Abraham. Our faith isn't supposed to be in David. Our faith, faith isn't supposed to be in a man, but our faith rests in Jesus Christ. Amen. And as God displayed in the garden, what God demands, he re, what he requires, he provides. Yes. I want you to catch that this morning. Like, that is the story of the gospel. That is the story of the Bible. That what God demands, what he requires, he provides. And some of you, you, you feel the, the weight and the demand of what God is asking of you, but you're not leaning in him for the provision. You're trying to do this on your own. You're trying to pick up in your own strength. You're trying to set your own foot forward. You're trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And he says, it will never work that way. Because outside of Jesus Christ, it will not happen. And when we talk about worship, it brings up a lot of different ideas. Usually we attach it to a group of songs or an experience we have at a church service. And oftentimes this idea that worship should be epic begins to creep into our minds, doesn't it? I mean, if we're honest, right? That if we just get it right, then God will be pleased and show up. And he'll reward us. That if we just do the right things in the right order and we perform properly, then God will just be there and reveal himself. But you see, God, re he judged Israel because they had made worship into a formula. A way to manipulate God into whatever they wanted. And God declares, no, I'm God, not you. 
My ways are above your ways. My ways are better. Trust me. Come along. Let me show you. Let me lead you into my path of provision because it's good for you. It's right for you. It's just for you. So in John 4, 1 through 26, we see that John begins to unpack this idea of what it means to be a true worshiper. So open your Bibles and turn with me. John 4, 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing disciples, more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from this journey, was sitting beside the well as it was about the sixth hour. A woman came from Samaria, came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you ask that that it's you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samarians. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? I mean, he gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst again. The water that I give him will become a living spring welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. And what you said is true. And the woman had said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this, on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place to, where people ought to go worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such a people to worship him. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And I want us to look at the first few verses here and unpack some things that John seems to highlight in this text. First being that he's starting off his, this message with, with um, his, the disciples baptizing. Now this is a baptism of repentance. And so John starts off this narrative, this story with the baptism of repentance. And I don't think it's any coincidence that John starts here. Because if we are going to be true worshipers of God, then it's going to start in Repentance. And it's going to start by hearts being repentant before the Lord. Because if you bring your pride before the Lord, he will reject you. If you bring your own goodness before the Lord, you have no space with him. And I find it too that interesting that John points out the fact that Jesus wasn't the one doing the baptism. Now Jesus commissioned baptism, yes, but... He also commissioned a work to be done by his disciples. I hope you can read between the lines here. That there is a work that has been commissioned for his disciples to carry out. A work that's been commissioned by God that only he can do, but through his people carry it out. Because we know there's nothing mystical or special or magical that happens when someone's baptized. But this is how John begins his story on what worship is, is that it's beginning, it starts in repentance. So I ask you this morning, has your worship started in repentance? And then John goes to point out that Jesus is going to leave a place called Judea. 
which we understand that to mean praise. And Judea actually happened to be a region in which was the worship mecca of the place. It was where worship took place. This is where the temple was. This is where the prophets would, would come out of. This is where the rabbis and the priests would all meet. And this is the place where if you were going to make your sacrifice, you would leave your regions and your providence, and you would travel all the distance all the way to Judea to go make your sacrifice. And John points out that Jesus is leaving the place of formulated worship. I don't think that's by coincidence. The next place that John gives us is that he is going to Samaria. Now, to give you a little backdrop on Samaria and what that means and what, why that's important is Daniel, as we talked about earlier, prophesied that Babylon would come and he would, Babylon, the nation, would come and destroy the temple and destroy the nation, would take the people and spread them throughout the globe. And they did that. And they came and they took the best and the brightest of, of the people and they left the rejects. Now, this is historical fact. And what the Babylonians would do is they, when they would go conquer a land, they would take the best people and they would take the brightest and they'd bring them back to the capital and they would take the others and disperse them in other towns to break up any family structures, any family units, any loyalties, any regions that would become disruptive. And they would leave people who were less capable more controllable in those regions. And so what happened in Samaria is when all the bright people left and only rejects were left and these heathens came in and they crossed bread and the Jews married foreigners and the Jewish religion began to marry foreign religions. And they would bring Baal into God's temple and they would worship the two together and this became very detestable to God. And so it became... In a pattern in the Jewish culture that you didn't deal with Samaritans. There was, there was only one way that you dealt with a Samaritan, and that was in trade. You could trade goods. But you wouldn't even receive the hospitality of a Samaritan, because if you did, it would defile you, and especially if you're a rabbi. And so what the Jews would do is when they had to pass through the regions from the lower end of the region to the upper, they would go the long way. They would go all the way around it. Just to bypass this town. And John lets us know that Jesus is not only, by, no, he doesn't bypass it, but he goes straight through it. And he goes to this town called Sakar, which has a reference. It's a kind of a slang term that's been given to this town. It's a nickname in a sense that means drunken falsehood. How would you like to live there? <laughs> yes, what's your town? No, drunken falsehood. We're just a big drunken lie. Vegas, right? <laughs> and so... Here's the Vegas of the region, right? And so that's kind of the story. And Jesus is on his way to Galilee. And if you know about Galilee, this is where most of God's, I mean, most of Jesus' miracles took place. This is where he had his best ministry. This is where a lot of things happened. And Galilee was often called the Galilee of the Gentiles or the circle of the Gentiles. It was a big trade route. It was a very, um, it was a very agricultural region. And so a lot of, Agriculture came out of that area and was traded in the far regions of the, of the world. And a trade route went through there. And so there was a lot of traffic and a lot of Gentiles that were always in that region. And I believe John is kind of setting up a story for us here. So here Jesus is. He's, he's leaving this formulated worship. He's passing through a cultural anomaly. He's breaking cultural norms to go to a city of drunken falsehood. But we see in verse 4 that he says, and he had to pass through Samaria. I don't know if you caught that when we read the first time, but here's John saying that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, this isn't something that Jewish people did. But here Jesus says, I have to pass through this. The Jews didn't because if they went through this region, that they would be, un, they would be unworthy of worshiping. And so they would have to go through an extra ritual to be cleaned and washed before they could prepare to meet with God. And so here Jesus is, he's breaking the cultural norms. 
He's breaking the structures of the time, of the modern age. Now, I think this is key because what Jesus is breaking here is he's breaking the patterns of old worship. And I believe John wants to show us that Jesus is instituting a new pattern of worship. See, the thing we need to see here is that Jesus is the initiator, that the gospel is a story of God who pursues us. There was a reason why Jesus had to go to Samaria. And here he is sitting beside the well on the wall, and he's waiting. He's waiting for this woman to come out. Because when she does, he Hey, can you give me a drink? Now we see Jesus breaking a cultural norm because Jews didn't receive hospitality from Samaritans. And so it initially creates this response to this woman. Like, you, a a Jew, would want something for me? And so there is no denotion in the scripture that she denied him. And so... Here Jesus says, I must go to Samaria. He sits at the wall. He waits. This woman comes out. His disciples had gone on ahead to trade. And he says, will you give me a drink? You know, there seems to be an awakening that begins to happen in this this woman. I don't know if you can kind of see this here. It seems to kind of be an awakening. And he says, give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me? And Jesus answered, for if you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. Now, it seems like Jesus was preloaded with this, isn't it? I don't know, have you ever been in a conversation you like knew you were going to go meet somebody and you've been thinking about it, right? Been like, I know what I'm going to say. And as soon as I say hello, you're like, bur, 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 right? You just jump to it. And it kind of almost seems like Jesus is preloaded in here. And this woman comes and, and she asks this question. And he's like, there's my inroad. But see, here's a story of Jesus who goes outside of the cultural norms because he's in an, he has an appointed time set to meet with a woman who is unrighteous, living in a drunken lie, outcast from society. And the man she is currently with won't even marry her or she won't even marry him. You see, the Bible's story is not about a God who invites us to attend an event he put up together. Did you catch that? The Bible's story is not a story about a God who put an event together and invites us to it. You see, we don't take a pilgrimage to the Middle East to go to a cross to see Jesus hanging there. We don't take a pilgrimage to go to an empty tomb and worship. There wasn't an event that God created that he invites us to. You see, the Bible story is about a God that comes, who pursues his rebellious and shameful guilt-ridden children in the garden to provide them with a sacrificial clothing to cover their nakedness and promises to bring an end to evil forever. This is the gospel narrative. It's a story that chooses a man for no other reason than God's sheer love. And, he, and through his barrenness, through his void, through his weakness, creates a nation of people. A people set apart and sent into the world to be blessed and to be a blessing. It's about a God who delivers them into a land so, so that from that land, the nation would, that they would bring all nations into the family of God. This is the gospel story. You see, people want to make it about you so that you'll give them your money. But it's not about you. It's about Jesus. People wanted to make it about you so you feel good and come back. But church, it's not about us. It's not about how we feel. It's not about what it makes us feel. It's not about if it tickles our ears or our fancies. It's about Jesus. Let's not lose that, church. Amen? You with me? (laughs) Because the outside keeps speaking in other things. There's a great deal of scripture, and especially the New Testament, that is to warn us to not follow false teachings. 
Only a decade or two after the start of the church, this starts. It's not like 300 years later, they're like, oh, hang on, somebody's trying to mess this thing up. No, from the beginning, there was those who sought to dilute, to pollute the things of God. The enemy is about... He wants to distract us from the true treasure in Jesus Christ. And he wants you to take your eyes and put them on yourself so that you can focus on yourself and worry about your own needs and not trust God to provide for you, believing that God may be withholding something from you, which was the first lie in the garden. And he still tells that lie today and we still believe it, don't we, church? Come on. And so it's good that we come together and we remind ourselves of who Jesus is, of how amazing he is, and how he has redeemed us, how his blood makes us righteous. It should excite us. It should make us excited that your righteousness isn't in you this morning. It should excite us that you didn't have to do the ceremony right to please God. It should excite you that you didn't have to worry about, oh, what did I do yesterday? Is God going to strike me dead today? Because the wrath of God has already been poured out on his son who took your place. This is the gospel. Worship isn't about us. It's about a Jesus who had to pass through wherever you were to get to you. I worship... Because there was a God who found a disillusioned young man who had abandoned church. Who wanted to chase after his own flesh and his own desires. You see, I worship God not because I had something to bring to God or because heaven was void of something. But because he came after me. He found an empty man who was void of life and he breathed new life into him. This morning I, I appeal to you, if you sit here and your life is empty... Let him breathe new life into you. Let him breathe new life into you this morning. Accept the gift he sets before you. The same gift he offered this woman. He said, if you knew the gift that was in front of you. You see, if we're going to worship the Lord as true worshipers, then we've got to come from a first perspective that it's a God that pursues us. That worship isn't about anything about what we bring God. That worship is all about what Jesus has provided for us. Because there was a gap between us and God. And there was a, an empty chasm that we could not get between. But the beauty is not that we were able to somehow make a bridge. The beauty is that Jesus what became the bridge as God's design to bring us back to the Father. Amen? Amen. Verse 10, he says to the woman, If you knew the gift of God and who it is is saying to you, she recognized that he must not be talking about this well. Because she's like, uh, you don't have anything to draw with. And this thing's deep. It's not like you're going to climb down there and dip in something and climb back up. Like, it's like 80 feet deep down there. You're not getting down there. How could she have this revelation if it's not God? See, some of you have been trying to get your own revelation or you've been looking to man for a revelation. But I want to tell you that Jesus is the revelation. Jesus is the expressed image of God. Jesus is the revelation of God incarnate before us. If you want a revelation, it's found in Christ. You see, Jesus, in verse 16, he reveals our sin situation. He looks at the woman and he tells her, he says, uh, go get your husband. See, this is where we want to, like, we, we, we're all about, oh, yeah, God, give me, give me that good drink. Give me that good stuff, God. And then God says, oh, what about this? And you go, oh, don't worry about that, God. Let's talk about worship. Let's talk about this. Which, which mountain do we go to? You see, that's a lot of times we, we kind of stop short, don't we? Come on. Let's be honest. When God chases after us, he reveals something in us, doesn't he? Yep. 
But the beauty is, is if we'll let him, then he will heal that brokenness in us. He will restore that void in us. He will bring to, to life dead places within us. Yeah. So she's here and she's like, well, we worship this way and y'all worship this way. Which one's right? <laughs> and here Jesus is again breaking cultural norms, right? You see, the Samaritans had a mountain in which they would go worship. They would do their blended, mixed-up worship. And the Jews worshiped in the temple in a way to uphold the Levitical law, although they got it wrong. And here this woman is, is well, which one's right? And it's Jesus' incredible response. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor on Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's speaking of the Messiah prophecy. He says, but the hour is coming, which he's speaking of his, his death, and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. You see, if we're going to be real true worshipers, we've got to come from a perspective that it's a God that pursues us. And secondly, when this God pursues us, he brings a revelation of, of our sin condition, of our situation, and he brings a revelation of who he is. There's a double revelation because he not only just says, woman, where's your husband? But he says, I am new life. You see, we need a God who pursues us because we're corrupt hearts will deceive us. We need a revelation of God because our eyes are stuck on ourselves. We look for a grand display of God. We look for epic signs that validate, but we actually, what we want is that God to validate us. He wants, we want God to validate our efforts. We want God to show up and then somehow everyone believe that, oh man, God likes me. We never want to be that person who's like, oh, well, what are you doing? I don't have a clue. Why you, why'd you make that decision? Can't tell you. That's just that's what I think God told me to do. See, there's nothing exciting about that, is there? <laughs> but yet, how many times as a believer do you feel yourself in that position where you make a decision not knowing, you just step out in faith? I mean, the story of Abraham, God comes to him and says, come on, I want to take you on a journey. Well, where are we going? I'll show you when we get there. Okay, so here's Abraham. He's got to go to his wife and say, um, we're, we're packing up. Where are we going? It's a good question. No, where are we going? I don't know. Any guys married in here? <laughs> you, you've done that to your wife, right? You've just gone and go, hey, we're going to go on a trip. Right? And what's she say? Where? Why? What do I need to pack? What do we need to bring? What is this? What about this? <laughs> so you're, yeah, we never want to be that guy. And then, in the Christian walk, it's a lot of times we walk into the situation and God says, I want you to go. And we go, okay, let's go. Where? Well, I don't know. I don't have the answers. I don't know what the next step is. I don't know what this looks like when it begins to unfold. You see, the problem isn't that we get it right because only Jesus got it right. And it wasn't through signs and miracles that he got it right. It was through learned obedience that he displayed on the cross. You know, oftentimes we want to kind of complain, and it's easy, especially from a ministry perspective, to look at some of these churches that seem to be large in numbers, that put on a really good show, that never open the Bible, never discuss the gospel, they never teach the hard things in Scripture, they just want to talk about your best life now, and I just want to say, I hope my best life's in heaven, not right now, because this isn't the best life, I, I mean... I got a good life, don't get me wrong, but the other day I burned my hand and I'm like, wow, this is really great. <laughs> Friday morning I wake up with an inner ear infection, the whole room's spinning. I'm like, oh, wonderful, I got to sing in a couple of days. <laughs> I don't want my best life now, I want it in heaven. I want it at the lambs, at, when I'm seated around the lamb supper with Christ. I want it when all of glory of heaven is shining down on me. That's when I want my best life. 
Because if I have it right now, then that's going to mean heaven's pretty empty and boring. Because there's a lot of boring times in my life, I have to admit. Because when I try to do something crazy and exciting, I end up wrecking my motorcycle. You see, Jeremiah was complaining to God about this similar scenario. He's like, man, these guys don't even preach your word and they have huge followings. And he's complaining to God, and I love this. With God replies back and he says, if you've raced with, foot, with men on foot and they've wearied you, how will you run with horses? If you've run with men and they've made you tired, how will you run with horses? Is what God says to Jeremiah. And I would almost say that to us this morning. And I would remind myself of that. Because a lot of times we want to compare ourselves to our neighbor, don't we? We want to compare ourselves to the person around us. We're like, oh man, that person's very spiritual, isn't they? Like, oh, I'm better than that person. And we get tired and wearied out by the people around us. And when I kind of believe that there's something bigger on the horizon that God's caught us to, but we can't step into it because we still think, make it about us. We still want to have our ears tickled. We still want to have our fancies ruffled. We still want to have our good times. And we've taken the exploits of God to mean Good, exciting, grand adventures, not steadfast and sureness in his calling and his provision. And I'm going to try to bring this in and land this ship here. Paul explains that our worship's more like this that we would make known the riches of his glory. Church, is that what we've come to make worship to be. When we gather in this place, is it to make known the riches of God's glory? Is it to feel good? Is it, did they sing the right song? Did they sing it the right way? Was it the right volume? Was this right? Was that right? Did I enjoy it? Did he just say a word that made me feel good, that encouraged me? But do we come together so that we may display the glory of God making known how amazing God is. Because I want you to catch this. There's a Jewish tradition, and if you, you see in this story that Jesus went to a well to meet a woman, and we find that narrative back in Genesis. And here is a man, he's getting old, and he's promised something by God, and he hasn't seen it yet. And he's about to die, and he makes a deal with his servant. He says, I want you to find a wife for my son. He said, um, and I want, to, I want to bind you to this oath that you're going to do this. You're going to not find a wife for him in, in the, among the Canaanites, but you're going to go back to my people, and you're going to find a wife. And so the servant is, like, very nervous. He wants to do a good job. And so he, on the way there, he's praying to the God of Abraham. And he's like, I don't know what you're doing, but God, can you do this? And so he goes to this well. Makes a simple prayer. See, sometimes we think our prayers have to be epic and roost chattering and they think they have to shake the rafters. And sometimes it's the most simplest prayers that go forward and, and make the biggest impact. And so this guy just lays out a simple prayer. He's like, God, can you make it known? <laughs> Would you make your will known? And so he's there and this young lady walks up. And she says yes to the invitation to be a bride. And Jews will tell you among their tradition that if you wanted a wife, that you would go to the well. Because in the morning, in the evenings, the young ladies would come out. And that's where they would be. Well, Jewish tradition would also tell you that if you wanted a woman of ill repute, you would go to the well. So here Jesus is. He leaves formulated worship. He goes breaking cultural norms to go meet his bride in a drunken stupor. 
who's rejected by men, who's rejected by society. And who knows, maybe they're looking for a man, another one. If you're in this house this morning and you don't know Jesus, if you haven't met Jesus, he's pursuing you today. This word isn't just spoken randomly. You felt it quickening in your heart. You felt stirring. You felt uneasiness. You felt jittery. You felt something you've never felt before stirring in you. That's the voice of God calling you home. I'm going to give you a moment to move to that. If the band would come up. You see, the gospel demands a response, and our worship is responsive. And I think this evening we need to make a response. And I think for some of you, it's time to quit. It's time to quit playing church. It's time to quit pretending. It's time to quit putting on a facade about what you think God is or how you can please God. It's, it's time to quit trying to do this on your own and your own strength and your own abilities. For some of you, I think that's your response today. For some of you, we need to see worship as a bride getting dressed and adorned for her wedding day. For some of you, you've no more oil in your lamp. Either you've given it all away and it's gone and it hasn't been replenished or you burned it all up for the Lord and you've got nothing new or you've given it away to others. Maybe you had a position and you were really anointed in that and you've given it away to others to make room for somebody else and now you're just like, I don't know, I'm just, I'm done. Or maybe you've gone to the wrong place for oil. You've been trying to find it in other places and other things other than Jesus. Maybe some of you have taken that wedding jewelry that God has adorned you with and you've made it into a golden calf. This morning, God is calling us to renewed sense of worship. He's calling us to tune out what the world would say worship is. To tune out what our ancestors would say worship is. To tune out what others would say worship is. To listen from heaven to what Jesus is saying worship is. To look to the pattern of Christ and to step in. See, some of you need a revelation of who Jesus is, a revelation only Jesus can, ki- can give. Some of you need to be, remind yourself of God's goodness and God's loving kindness. Some of you need to be adorned in your wedding jewelry. I want to give you a moment as the band sings. If that's you this morning, if that's hit you, will you respond? Will you come respond? I know it's in front of everybody else and I know all the eyes are watching. But you know what's more important? Heaven's watching. And will you today make a great exploit for the Lord and step out and say, oh, I will stand firm in you, God. Is that you this morning? Let's come. Let's come. Come on, I'm not giving fanfare. I'm not going to stroke your emotions. emotions. If, if, if this word has penetrated your heart, then would you respond? Worthy is Some of you have got no oil in your lamp. Jesus says, come and get what you cannot buy. 
your seat. That's fine. Do it in your seat. But now's the time to respond. Sing a new song to him who this morning before we leave today Matt I close with just a pastoral statement this is why we talk about being on time to the Lord's house because we don't offer worship lackadaisically or whenever it fits the schedule we don't offer it without affection we don't offer it without emotion we don't offer it apathetically it is in response to his grace operating in our lives 
It is more important. If the hair isn't done, if the clothes aren't pressed, I want to be there. I want to be ready. I want to be full. I want to let him see me in his house. Father, we just honor you today. We magnify your great name. We esteem you. We set you apart. We magnify your word. Create in us a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within us. Restore unto us the joy of thy salvation. Let, let this be a house, Lord, uh, like ways that not of epic things, but glory. Your glory in our heart, in our mind, on our countenance, in our words, in our deeds. If you must be worshipped in spirit and in truth, then sign us up. Sign us up, Lord. As we go out from this place today, I want to invite you back. Prayer tonight, five, and then at six. Uh, Wade's going to be doing part two to worship, so you don't want to miss it. I want to give you this last perspective before we leave. I talked about the worship team and those, you know, I got Michael and Erica singing behind me and Felicia in there and all that harmony. And they just make me all tired because I got one key. I can work that one key though. I can, I can do it, you know. But you know the thing about worship that's the most beautiful to me? Worship is about gratitude. Okay. And I can out gratitude any of you. I, I, I Listen, it's not about gifting or ability. It's about bringing, coming before him and pushing all the, the, the great singers out of the way and go, my time, my time. May this house be filled with people that worship. Have a wonderful Lord's Day. God bless you.